Have you ever been in a position where somebody has told you that they're praying for you? I don't know about you. Sometimes that feels better than others. But on the whole, it's a a wonderful encouragement to us to know that somebody is thinking of us and that they are, are taking the specific step of remembering us before God. Personally, I find it even more encouraging if that person is a person whom I really, really trust, someone whom I think to have a lot of spiritual wisdom. Whenever that's the case, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm not only encouraged to know that they are praying for me, I want to know what they're praying so that I can enter in with them and also be ready to anticipate those ways in which God will work to answer their prayers. Imagine then if you discovered that Jesus was praying for you. Wouldn't you find that, first of all, very encouraging? Wouldn't you want to know what he had prayed on your behalf? When God the Son petitions his Father on your behalf, would you not want to know? We should be all ears as followers of Jesus Christ now as we look at these last verses of John 17, when Jesus turns to pray for all who will believe in him. The whole of John 17 has been a prayer. In the first part of the chapter, Jesus prayed for himself. In the middle section, he prays for his disciples, focusing really on the 11 with him in that room on that night. But now, he prays for all those who, who believe and who will believe in him. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. That is the 11 who are with him at that moment. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Friends, this includes us. Tonight, we are going to learn what Jesus prays for us. We're going to look at this prayer very quickly this evening because I do want to keep a little bit of time over at the end to bring this series as a whole to a close. Two things we're going to look for. What does Jesus pray for us? And then why does he pray it? Firstly then, what does Jesus pray? Look at verse 21. For all those who believe in him, he's praying that all of them may be one. Jesus is praying for unity among his followers. Now, he's already prayed that for the 11 in the room. He did that in verse 11 of chapter 17. But now he prays that. And in a sense, this is a much more ambitious prayer. To pray for unity among 11 people, that that just might work. To pray for unity among the millions whom Jesus knew would believe in him, that's a, a massive prayer to pray. So what Jesus is praying here really is that Those of us who love him, regardless of our age, our ethnicity, regardless of the language that we speak and the continent that we're born on, regardless of our education and our social status, he is praying that we will be one. I think that's quite amazing. Have you ever experienced the supernatural unity of the people of God? As I reflected on my own experience, there were a couple of moments that stood out in particular. In my late teens, 
I can remember meeting with 6,000 believers from all over the world at Offenbach in Germany from, for o Operation Mobilization's Love Europe Congress. We were together there for five days, 6,000 of us, worshiping God, learning together, preparing for a time of outreach when we would go into all corners of Europe. A more diverse group of people you really could not ever imagine. We were from all over the world, as I've said. We spoke all sorts of different languages. I ended up being part of a team, I think, of 18 people with 13 different first languages. So, you know, we were coming together from all over the place. You could say that we had nothing in common, but that wasn't my experience. My experience was that despite having on the surface nothing in common, we had everything in common because the fundamental reality of the universe, God, and his presence in our lives was the thing that we shared in common. I can think of times I shared with fellow students at Regent College in Vancouver. I studied with all sorts of people, and I think that was one of the real strengths of, of that three years of training that I had. I didn't study only with, with people who were training to be ministers. I, I studied with um, financial consultants, doctors, journalists, teachers, physiotherapists, people from all occupations that you could imagine. The student body represented, I think at the time I was there, around about 30 different nationalities. One of my most enjoyable friendships was with a guy, Paul Goodison, from the Faroe Islands. Uh, I just had never met anybody from the Faroe Islands and I loved hearing him talk about that. He would talk about, and I never knew if he was pulling my leg or not, but he would talk about puffin catching when they would stand on a cliff's edge and in a certain wind, the puffins would just pass over the edge of the cliff and people would try to catch them. Now, I don't know. I suspect he probably was pulling my leg. But by your reaction, actually, I think he... We were from all occupations all over the world. We weren't all Presbyterians. You know, I shouldn't maybe let this cat out of the bag. I studied with Baptists and Anglicans. I was taught New Testament by a Pentecostal. We had nothing in common. We were from all over the world. We were thrown together in this one place for this period of time to just get on with it. But friends, we were one. We were one in a way that you don't often experience even with people whom you're supposed to have so much in common with. We experienced, I believe, the unity that Jesus prayed in this prayer. The unity of all who would believe. In this prayer, and I'm moving very quickly this evening, Jesus gives us some idea as to the basis of this unity. He's talking about the increasing number of people who are going to believe in him. And he says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He's praying that prayer to the Father. Do you remember last week we talked about the glory of Jesus Christ? And we recognized two aspects of it, one more obvious than the other. Jesus will... Jesus had glory from before the beginning of time, and he is in, in glory now. That is one aspect of the glory of Jesus, that glory of 
being in the eternal presence of his Father. But we, we learned last week about a different kind of glory. The glory of Jesus' humiliation. The glory that led him by way of the cross. Well, friends, it seems to me that Jesus, after talking about both of those types of glory, now says, that is what I'm giving to my disciples. This is the glory that Jesus gives to those of us who follow him. If you're a Christian this evening, if you're somebody who follows Jesus Christ, you have this glory. You have the glory of the cross. What does that mean? Well, friends, it means we should expect, and we've talked about this before, we should expect as we follow Jesus, that our experiences begin to mirror those of Jesus. As he was hated by some in the world, so we should expect to be hated. As he suffered, so those who follow him consistently and well will suffer. Friends, as he went the way of the cross, so our lives must be lives of the cross. But that's not our shame. That is to our glory, Jesus says. William Barclay once said, we must never think of the cross as our penalty. We must think of it as our glory. The harder the task we give a student or a craftsman or a surgeon, the more we honor him. So when it's hard to be a Christian, at that moment, we must regard it as our glory, as our honor given to us by God. I hadn't prepared to, to say this, but just as I read that, it strikes me much of what passes as Christian living today doesn't have any of this glory. It's always a look for the, the easy walk or the exciting experience. It's never or rarely a look for the identification with the the suffering life of Jesus. And yet that's where the glory is. Christians are united, Jesus says, because they share in his glory, but they're also united because of their experience of Jesus' presence. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me. Those who participate in the glory of, God, of Jesus are indwelt, we're told here, by the living God. Isn't that what Jesus promised three chapters back in chapter 14, verse 23? If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. We talked about this. It's not only the Spirit who is present in the believer. It's the Father and the Son by the Spirit, the Trinity, the glorious Trinity together who indwell those who love Jesus Christ. Friends, I I suspect this is one of the hardest parts of Christian living for most of us, to grasp what it means to be indwelt by the fullness of God. Whenever Jesus lived on earth, he was fully human. 
And the thing that distinguished Jesus from any people around him was the fullness of the Spirit of God in him. Jesus was the first glimpse we've ever seen of a human being fully indwelt by the Spirit of God. Friends, that's what God longs to give each one of us, a a fullness of His presence. So that's another reason why true believers are, are united. It's because of God's Spirit in them. We can come from all over the world. We can speak all sorts of different languages. We can have different educations and different social statuses. But if God's Spirit is in us, then we're all loving the same God. We're all depending on the same God. We're all relying on the same God. And actually, in some respects, we're becoming more like Jesus, all of us. We are united in God. We've talked here about the thing that Jesus prays for. What does Jesus pray for? He prays that his disciples might be united in him very quickly, much more quickly. Why is it that Jesus prays this? Why is that so important? Why is Jesus' chief concern for us that we're united in him? Well, look at verse 23. Jesus asks the Father on behalf of all those who will believe, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays for unity in the church for people outside the church. Unity inside the church is more important outside of the church. It's for those who don't yet believe who can see Jesus in this. Friends, this is how the church grows. It's when people from outside of the church who don't yet know and love Jesus come into contact with people in whom the Spirit of God is clearly at work. It's whenever they see the supernatural love that God gives us for one another, a unity that's impossible to explain, that has no other basis. When people see that, God uses that to prompt them and to draw them to Him. I think this has a very, very real application for us here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. We're becoming a very diverse congregation these days, and that's, that's very different from our, our recent history. It used to be that most of our members were in a certain age band, but now our age range on a, on a Sunday at worship can be over nine decades with lots of people in between. It used to be that one style of music was enough to cater for this congregation. That's no longer the case. We're having to expand our repertoire and the ways in which we worship God. It used to be that the vast majority of people who gathered here on a Sunday morning lived in this immediate area. But in common with many communities of today, we're finding that our church community is a little more scattered nowadays. So on the surface, when you hear me describe it in those terms, this doesn't sound like a great place, 
a very promising starting point for community. From one point of view, you wouldn't imagine that this is the kind of place we'd expect deep fellowship. You could say that we don't have a lot in common. Friends, in God's eyes, it doesn't matter what we do or don't have in common. It doesn't matter if we're working or if we're retired, if we like singing songs or if we like singing hymns, if we live in Ballyhackamore or in Dundonald. What matters is that His presence is in us. Do you understand that if the Spirit of God is at work in you, and you come in contact with another person in whom the Spirit of God is, do you understand that the Spirit just wants to connect? God drawing us to each other as His Spirit in one draws us close to the Spirit in another. That's, that's, a, that's a connection, the likes of which you can't replicate elsewhere. Friends, I I love certain types of music. I love watching films. I love football and Man United. And I know that that at times brings me into feelings of connection with people. Like today, for example, when Man United have just beaten Arsenal 2-0, it's lovely to meet with a fellow United fan over a cup of tea and to share that, just to share a bit of the love there, you know, a a bit of the goodness of that. But, but I know that that's, that's not close to the kind of connection that there is when, when the very deepest part of me, who I'm becoming under God, connects with, with a friend in Christ. That's a unity the likes of which we can't see outside of Christ. We're only going to glance at the last couple of verses very, very quickly, so, so let's do that and then bring this series to a close. If you love Jesus this evening, look carefully at what he prays for you in verse 24. He wants you to join him in glory. Do you have any idea of that? Everything that Jesus has experienced through all eternity in glory with his Father, he wants you to see that. He wants you to be part of that. Not in this passage, but elsewhere. Jesus talks about sharing his glory with us. I don't I don't even begin. I don't think I don't think I have the capacity to to capture all of that. You see, it's important that that Jesus be glorified. All of his earthly ministry, Jesus, think about the life he lived. He lived in a Galilean backwater. He worked as a joiner. That's what Jesus did. He went round people's houses, knocking up door frames, and people came to him and ordered video cabinets. That's what Jesus did for 30 years. For three years, he had public ministry. So he lives in this Galilean backwater. He he works as a joiner. And even when he comes into the public eye, he does it with this, this meekness, at all costs almost, shrouding his glory. But that's not all of who Jesus is. One day, we're going to see Jesus in all of his glory. And Jesus prays that for each one of us. 
And I, for one, I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. Paul gives us an idea of what will happen when the glory of Jesus is revealed. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are going to be with him. And we're going to share his glory. I just think it's, it's beautiful. In the last couple of verses, Jesus reviews his ministry on earth. In verse 26, he prays to the Father. He says, I have made you known to them. That's been Jesus' purpose. Jesus came to make the Father known. Whenever you see Jesus, you see God. But he tells us that this work's going to go on. So in verse 26, he prays, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This work of Jesus, making the Father known, is a work that's going on and it's going on tonight through us. Do you ever feel that your walk with God is just a, it's just something you do? It's something that, that you do until the day when you die. It hasn't got a whole lot of purpose. Jesus has called you. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. But that's it. Friends, Jesus has called you to do the very work that he did. As he was the vehicle for God's presence in the world, he wants you and I to be the same. His spirit in us. God being revealed in this world. I want to spend just the last three or four minutes, and it really will be that, bringing our reflections in this series to a close. I'm glad Dan picked up um, something that I, I hoped would be evident as we looked at these chapters together. It seems to me that John chapter 13 to 17 is the part of the Bible where we get the most intimate insights into the relationship of Jesus with his disciples. In the middle of chapter 15, we're astonished to find that Jesus calls his disciples friends. And that's why we have called this series Jesus and His Friends. So I want to finish these last three or four minutes of this whole series. And I want to ask you a question. How do we cultivate our friendship with Jesus? How do we, in Jesus' words, remain in Him so that he will remain in us. How do we remain in Jesus? Well, from what we've learned in this passage and from what we know elsewhere in the Bible, I want to suggest very quickly two answers. Firstly, to remain in Jesus, we must remain in his word. Throughout this conversation with his disciples, Jesus constantly urges his disciples to take his words seriously. He says this, on one occasion, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. 
Then he says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And a few verses later, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. To remain in Jesus, we must remain in his word. That means, obviously, that we should be men and women of the Bible. We should be reading it, studying it. We should be allowing the Bible to become the foundation of our lives. We should be working, if you'd rather have phrased it this way, we should be working towards a fully biblical worldview. That when you look at the world and when you think of your life, you think God's thoughts. Friends, that doesn't happen overnight. That takes a lifetime of study and involvement in the Word. Could I commend that to you this evening? To be a friend of Jesus Christ, that you commit yourself to to His Word. But I want to suggest this evening that it might mean something even more specific than this. I think that disciples of Jesus Christ should be committed to studying the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we should be familiarizing ourselves with these accounts of Jesus' life. Now, I don't want to be controversial here. I'm remembering a conversation that we had in college. It was in theology class with Dr. Packer, and in a question time at the end, somebody asked, is any part of the Bible more important than any other? I mean, It felt almost like one of those questions the Pharisees asked Jesus when they were trying to trap him. And I was all ears. What's Dr. Packer going to say here? Well, he he made all the provisos that you'd expect him to say. He said, "All, all Scripture is inspired of God. All is useful. But he said, if I could point you to one part of God's Word to pay special attention and to give give particular detailed consideration." He said, go to the Gospels. Go to those those accounts of the life and the teaching of Jesus. Spend time there. Be leisurely there. Dwell on what we learn of Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Learn his teaching and remain in it. By the way, I would have to say, I'm only now discovering how little I really know the Gospels. I think there's a tendency, if we grow up in a Sunday school type environment, that in adult life we rely on Sunday school experiences. We think we know what Jesus said and what Jesus did. I'd encourage you, particularly, maybe you've lost heart with your Bible reading recently, go home and read the Gospels. Just read them. Pay attention as a disciple of Jesus to what Jesus said and did. The first way in which we remain in Jesus is to remain in his word. And finally, in this whole series, the second way is to throw our lives open once more to his spirit. One of the surprising things we noticed in this series is that whenever Jesus was leaving his disciples, remember all of this is the night before he he went to the cross. When he was leaving his disciples, the, the, the fascinating thing that Jesus seemed to say is, it's better for you that I'm going. 
Jesus said, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Friends, Jesus hasn't left us. He hasn't. Jesus Christ is here with us this evening. If you're in Christ, then his spirit is in you. I want to encourage you to to open your life once more and further to the spirit of God. Listen, if you've heard strange stuff in churches about about the spirit and, and reasons why not to live an open life to the spirit of God, I'd encourage you to push all of that into the background. There's nothing here to fear. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. We need be no more afraid of the Spirit than we are of Jesus. Yes, we need to be wise. Yes, we need to be aware of of things. But it would be a tragedy if those of us who claim to love Jesus and to want to be His disciples were we're living with the Spirit, the very power and presence of Jesus at arm's length. Friends, if we're to remain in Him, if we're to know the joy of being His friends, then we must open our lives further to His Spirit. Remain in me, Jesus says. Let's be people of His Word and people who are open always to His Spirit in us. Let us pray. Father God, we are eternally grateful to You for Your loving kindness for the grace you pour into our lives. We thank you that your way of dealing with us is so tender and so precious. Lord, we thank you that that you call us friends. We thank you that you've, you've shown us your ways and you've given us your word. Lord, we thank you even more than that, that you give us your spirit that you, the perfect and pure and eternal God, are willing to come and dwell in us. The filthy and the frail and the feeble. That you're willing to pour your Spirit liberally on us. The only thing that stops the generous outpouring of your Spirit is our own unwillingness to receive you. Lord, this evening, we want you. We want to throw our lives open to you and to your word. We want to remain in you because more than anything else in all our lives, we want that you remain in us. Come, Holy Spirit. 
Make us temples of the living God. Make us that individually, but also as a congregation. Make this a place where your spirit roars, where your presence burns, and where we are changed into the likeness of Jesus. Amen.